welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency. This is podcast episode 19.1, and it's a bonus podcast this week from our Grand Round series. This talk was on numeracy, and it was given by Brian Fries. Brian is a chief resident in emergency medicine at the Cooper EM Residency in Camden, New Jersey, and he was selected to give this talk as part of the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine Chief Resident Incubator Project. All right, here we go. We're going to talk today about a topic called numeracy, um, which is a word some of you may not have heard, um, and my program director hadn't either and accused me of making it up. Um, but so the, the outline for today, we're going to talk a little about what numeracy specifically is, and then we're going to go over and look at some common errors people make when dealing with numbers, some numerical, numerical fallacies. Um, over the course of my presentation, I'm going to try to make a point as to why you should care. Um, and then at the very end, I'm going to try to give you some opportunities and some methods to improve your own numeracy. So I figured we should start with a definition since numeracy isn't necessarily a word everyone uses in their everyday language. Um, and it's pretty straightforward. I think we could probably all come up with a definition. Um, and that is just the ability to understand and work with numbers. And I think presumably most people in this room are literate or else you're just a really good guesser to get this far in your career. Um, and so I'm going to make a little bit of a correlation or a comparison to literacy. Um, I think most of us are literate in the English language, um, and so if I were to ask you to read this, it's probably a little bit difficult, because I don't think anyone here is literate in wingdings. Right? So this is wingdings, it's a bunch of symbols, it doesn't mean anything to us, because we're not literate in it. Now, if I change it a little bit, there may be some people in this room who know enough Spanish, or know a little bit of Spanish, that they recognize some of these words, and can pick the corresponding picture that goes with this sentence. Um, and then finally, um, if I make it English, presumably the rest of us in the room all now know what's going on and which picture we're talking about. And for those of you who aren't literate, I didn't want to leave you out. Um, it's the one right there uh, in the bottom right. Um, and so I think numeracy is a really important topic, especially um, in medicine. And we do a lot of things uh, with numbers. And although we all consider ourselves to be literate, I don't know that many of us often consider whether or not we're numerate. Uh, I think we'd all like to think that we can do basic math uh, basic division, but sometimes when you're going through a, a medical article or a research article, the statistics can get a little dragged down and you can feel a little bit overwhelmed. Um, and the same is true in the general population. So there was a study that looked at numeracy in the general population, so just everyday people. Um, and they had a couple different questions, but one that stood out was they asked this question. What does it mean when a weather forecaster tells you there's a 30% chance of rain tomorrow? Now, hopefully most of us in this room know it was a multiple choice question. The first answer was, it will rain for 30% of the day tomorrow. Option B was, it will rain in 30% of the area tomorrow. And option C is, it will rain in 3 out of 10 days like tomorrow. Now if you know what probability is or know what percentage are, you know the answer is C. Or if you're just a really good test taker, answer C the longest, it must be true. Um, <laughs> But the interesting thing about this study was that 66% of people in the general population got the answer wrong. Uh, this study was done in 2005, which isn't that long ago, and you would expect, excuse me, you would expect that people would know that by now. They would have a better understanding of their ability to work with, with probability. But hey, we're physicians, we deal with numbers, we went to all this school, we're probably a little bit smarter. But are we? Um, and so this is a study that was published in JAMA back in about 2009. And there was a survey of, of a bunch of different residencies, 11 different residencies across the country. And it was more focused on medical statistics. So they asked a few demographic questions, and then there were about 10 to 11 different questions about statistics. And the average score 
for medical residents was 41%. Right? That's a little bit of a bummer. Right? We often think that statistics is very important. And um, interestingly enough, 75% of those surveyed said they knew that they didn't understand statistics. They knew that they had a weakness. And that's important in and of itself, right? That's one of the first issues when you're trying to fill a void. You have to be able to recognize that that void exists. Um, and 95% of them thought that medical statistics or a knowledge thereof was important to their career in medicine. And I think everyone in this room could agree that we like to practice the best evidence-based medicine that we can. And part of that is using evidence and using the statistics and the results that it generates to change our practice. Um, so I'm going to start things off today with a little bit of a game. Did I have any volunteers? Are there any medical students with us today? There was like support. No, no. All right, so I have twenty dollars. I actually have twenty dollars here, and if you pick the door with the cash behind it, the twenty dollars is yours. There's no tricks here. Uh, so I just need somebody to come up here. All right, excellent. Right there. So you don't actually have to come. You can stay right where you're at. Okay. So we're going to play a bit of a game. And there is $20 behind one of these three doors. Alright? You just have to pick which door it is. Two. Two. Alright, so you're going to pick door number two. Alright? So, I'm going to show you a different door. Alright, that the money's not behind. Alright, so the money's not behind door number one. Right? You still picked door number two. I just showed you that the money's not behind door number one. Alright, so we now have two doors left. So my question to you is, would you like to switch doors? Yes. Okay. So we're not going to switch doors. All right, so unfortunately, we should have switched doors. Right, so I'm going to take that $20 back. I think a couple of you are talking about a couple of things that I'm going to talk about right now, which is excellent. Right? And this is something called the Monty Hall problem. Um, and it's been um, publicized in a few different movies. And the reason that it's exciting, the reason that it's interesting, is that 80% of people stick with their door. They don't trust me. Why would they trust me? I'm trying to make you make a mistake. But the truth is, um, the math is that if you switch, you're actually doubling your chance that you're going to pick the door with the money behind it. Now, originally, I was just going to stop there and move on, but for those of you who don't believe me, you're all going to pull out your phones and go Google it right now um, and try to figure out what exactly that explanation is. So let me just try to explain to you why switching your doors doubles your chance. So we started out with three doors, and you picked one, and I think we could all agree that at the very beginning, there's a 33% chance or one-third chance that the money's behind one of those three doors, right? And I think that all makes sense, right? So the next step is I show you a door, right? I'm the game show host. Um, I show you a door, and so the next logical conclusion is that the money is still behind one of those two doors, and there's a 50-50 chance that it's behind one of those two doors. Right? The piece of crucial information that you're not taking into account when you make that decision is me, right? The game show host, right? And I know where the money is, and I'm never going to show you the money when I reveal the first door, because then my game show is over, right? And I have to fill more time, right? So it's important to remember that I'm a confederate up here, and I'm trying to trick you, um, or I know a little bit more information. So let's refocus and relook at kind of the way that we think about it, right? So we can say that the door you picked has a 33% chance, and the doors that you didn't pick have a two-thirds chance, right? And the key piece of information is, I choose which door to show you, and I made that decision, and I know where the money is. Um, and so, although your door still has a 33% chance, these group of these two doors has a two-thirds chance. And so when I'm asking you if you want to switch, the only door that you can switch to still has that two-thirds chance, right? And so switching from the door that you kept to the new door doubles your chance of getting the money. All right, so most people keep it. Don't feel too bad. There'll be another opportunity to make some money later on. So, for the course of the next couple things, I'm going to talk a little bit 
about a couple different numerical errors people often make and we often see in studies. Um, some of them may make you money, some of them may be funny, and some of them may relate to our practice of medicine. So the first one is called the gambler's fallacy, and we'll jump right into, right into that. Um, and so I have a, another uh, scenario for you, right? So let's say you're at home and you get a letter in the mail, right? And you've gotten a letter from this same investment banker for six weeks in a row. And every six weeks, he sends you a letter with a prediction about a stock, whether it's going to go up or down. And for the last six weeks, he's been right every single time. This time when he sends you his letter, he asks you for $500 and he'll tell you what the stock market's going to do next week, right? And so, you know, he's gotten it right six times. Maybe he knows what he's doing. Maybe he's, maybe he's really good at his job. But let me give you a little bit more information. Like what if I told you six weeks ago, he didn't mail that letter to just you, he mailed that letter to 32,000 people. And in half of them, he told them the stock market was gonna go up, and in half of them, he told them the stock market was gonna go down. A week later, he only mailed the people a letter that he got it right here, right? And he did that continuing, 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 until you got to where you are today, and that is, oh my God, this guy's a genius, he's predicted the stock market six times in a row. Right? And so you don't have all the information when you're evaluating it based on that one letter. Um, and so I'm not here to give you financial advice. I have no background in, in finance. But there's a group of people that subscribe to this belief that the best way to invest your money is with passive investment. And you want to avoid active investment, which is where people try to guess the stock market and move your money around. And so there's a book um, called The Bogleheads, and it's... Um, by a gentleman named Jack Bongo, who was the one who kind of founded this movement. And there's a bunch of people that subscribe to this idea that you can't predict the stock market unless you have insider trading information. And to do so, based on prior performance, is a bad idea. Uh, so let's maybe take it down a level and try to make it a little more simple, right? So let's say we're tossing coins. Let's say I tossed, I tossed a coin six times and the last four I got were heads. What's the chance, what's the probability when I flip the coin the next time? that it's gonna be ahead. Right, it's still 50%, right? It's still 50%. It's always 50%, right? Unless the coin is, is weighted or it's a trick coin, uh, it's always 50%. The coin doesn't know what happened last time. The coin's not an intelligent being, right? And the same thing is true even if you flip the coin 6,000 times and 4,000 of those times it came up heads, right? It's still a 50% chance, right? And so this is something that's called the gambler's fallacy because people tend to believe that if something has happened more frequently than normal in the past, it's gonna happen less frequently than normal in the future, all right? And that's a mistake, right? Because the past events of the flip point don't predict the future events of the flip point, right? And so, so casinos got really, really smart and started to make a lot of money off of this fallacy. I don't know if anyone here plays roulette, um, but roulette's a pretty simple game. A ball spins around a circular wheel and lands on a number, and that number also has a color. So everyone places their bets. You can pick a number, you can pick a color, you can pick even, you can pick odd, and you put some money down, right? And then the ball is rolled, um, and then you find out if you win or not, right? The thing that casinos did that made them make a lot more money is they added a scoreboard. Right? They added a scoreboard, and the scoreboard shows you what's happened at this roulette wheel for the last couple rounds. Right, and so, oh look, we've had a run of three reds. I'm gonna put a ton of money on black, because black is due, right? But it's the same thing, the gambler's fallacy, right? The past actions don't affect the future actions. Uh, with so I did Google before I came. I guess it looks like you have a casino in a raceway, just, I'm not sure where I am, but I'm gonna put it that way. 
uh, about, about three miles away. So in case you guys are planning to try to make some money, pay back some of those loans, um, I would highly not recommend roulette. And if you do want to play roulette, that's fine, but ignore the scoreboard, okay? The next one I want to talk about is something called the base rate fallacy. This is um, a little bit more complicated, and we're going to run through a few more scenarios with this one. Just a quick chime in here, because there's a lot of images that aren't going to come across well on the podcast version. Brian shows a couple examples of fictional scenarios. The one he keys in on is about a 31-year-old woman named Linda. The narrative states that Linda is an outspoken and intelligent woman who majored in philosophy, and when she was a student, she was deeply concerned about issues on discrimination and social justice. Brian then gives a list of choices as to what it is that Linda does now. Among those choices is a bank teller, is active in the feminist movement, and a bank teller that is interested in the feminist movement. He then asks everyone to make a choice as to which is the most likely. And so the interesting thing about this, and you guys are not representative of normal people, gosh darn it, um, is that most people pick number eight. Right? And that's interesting because my instructions for you were to pick the one that is most likely. Right? And if I show you this graph, maybe it makes a little bit more sense as to why I show it to you, right? It is much more likely that Linda is either a bank teller or a feminist than it is that she is both a bank teller and a feminist, right? And so the problem we run into is we read through that and we say, oh, look, that sounds so much like her. That must be the right one. And we forget that being just a bank teller or being just a feminist is more likely. So this is actually, I didn't come up with this example. This is an example that's been done um, in study back in the 1970s, and they did it on a bunch of undergraduates. 89% of people picked number eight. Um, and they were blown away. Because look, you gotta be a bank teller before you can be a bank teller and a feminist. You gotta be a feminist before you can be a feminist and a bank teller. They thought it was so obvious, but were blown away that so many people were making this mistake. So they said, well, they're just undergraduates. Maybe they just don't know anything. Let's do it again, but let's get more intelligent people. So they repeated the study, but this time they enrolled graduate students. And they enrolled graduate students that were studying probabilities, statistics, and cognitive decision theory. Right? And they repeated the test, and 85% of them, so a little bit better than 89%, still picked number eight. Right? And this is something that's called the base rate fallacy. Um, and it simply means that we tend to avoid background rates and information, and we overweight and we heavily weight special circumstances or specific circumstances of what we're dealing with. Um, and that changes our perception, perception of what we think is actually going on. So I'm going to try and tie this in uh, to medicine a little bit, and I'm going to do that with chest pain. Hopefully all of you have seen a few patients with chest pain. It's the number two most common complaint. People come into the emergency department, um, and so we see quite a bit of it. All right, so I'm going to give you a patient scenario. You have a 62-year-old male. He has a past medical history of hypertension. He comes into the emergency department and tells you that he's had two hours of acute onset, sharp, ripping, tearing chest pain. He goes right from the middle of his chest all the way to his back. Um, now, I was going to pick on a medical student uh, to see if they could guess where I'm trying to drive. I'm going to assume the rest of you can guess where I'm trying to drive with this clinical presentation. And I think everyone in this room, or at least hopefully everyone in this room, would be a little bit concerned about the diagnosis of acute aortic dissection. So certainly most of us would probably get a little bit more of a history. We're going to do a physical. We're going to get the EKG. Maybe we'll get a chest X-ray. But most of us with this history in and of itself are going to proceed and probably get a CTA. So in our fictional story, this gentleman got a CTA in his chest. And the radiologist reads it as no acute abnormality. Um, and for the first couple of years of my residency, this infuriated me. Right? It's infuriated me because I read the textbook and I read the chapter 
on acute aortic dissection, right? And for once, my patient did too, right? And he's reading the textbook to me, right? But clearly, the radiologist hasn't read the textbook. He should know that there should be an aortic dissection there, right? And so I'm not sitting up here telling you I want my patients to have an aortic dissection, but I couldn't come to grips with why this patient doesn't have an aortic dissection if he has all of the symptoms just like the textbook. And to try to give you a little bit more information or try to give you a better explanation as to maybe why he doesn't have an acute aortic dissection, let's look a little bit at chest pain and a little bit about the numbers associated with chest pain. So there are roughly 7.5 million visits to emergency departments in the United States every year for chest pain. That's a lot. Um, and roughly 1.5 million of those people will get admitted and get some diagnosis of ACS, whether that's a STEMI, whether that's a non-STEMI, whether it's unstable angina, whether it's just some you know, collection term and they just call it ACS, right? So you could calculate you know, those probabilities, those chances. That means that for every one patient, for every five patients, excuse me, that present with chest pain, one of them is gonna get a diagnosis of ACS. It may seem a little bit high to some of you. Now, a lot of this data comes from retrospective studies, and so there probably is a little bit of bias but most observational studies have shown um, a rate of ACS somewhere between 15 and 20%. So the number is pretty close to accurate, all right? And so we're going to use it for our example, right? So every time you see a chest pain patient, there's a one in five chance they have ACS, right? But what are the numbers for acute aortic dissection, right? So there's seven and a half million people who present every year with chest pain, but how many people get diagnosed with acute aortic dissection every year? Not nearly as many. And again, it's an estimate, but the IRAD study and a couple other studies have suggested that it's roughly somewhere between eight and 10,000 people in the United States a year get diagnosed with acute aortic dissection. So what does that mean? What does that number work out to? And the answer is, it comes out to one in 750, right? Which means I have to evaluate 750 patients before my probability, before I'm likely to see that patient with acute aortic dissection. Now I can see it earlier, it's just less likely. If I compare this number to my number for ACS, for every 100 to 150 patients I see with ACS, I'm going to see one patient with an acute aortic dissection. And maybe that explains why, even when they have the story, they're more likely to have just ACS than they are to have an acute aortic dissection. Right? And this is really frustrating. I'm sure if there's uh, some clinical faculty and educators in the room, they've seen this or heard of this before. And this is called the Dunning purring effect. Um, and most of us in residency probably start here as an intern, like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing for the first couple of days. And over the course of our intern year, we start to get a little bit of confidence. We start to feel like we know a little bit more about emergency medicine. And it suggests that the peak of this curve corresponds with the end of your second year, the beginning of your third year, right? You're starting to see all these patients with chest pain that don't have anything. No one that you ever work up for an acuity or dissection has it. You do so many um, CTs and LPs, no one ever has a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And you start to get a little bit frustrated and you say, no one's ever sick, everyone just has these bogus complaints, can't we just discharge them? Right? And that's because of these base rates. But as you spend more time in the emergency department, you spend more time in clinical practice, you start to fall back down on your confidence. And that's because you hear your colleague who may have missed an aortic dissection, where you start to realize this patient who you admitted for low-list chest pain went into a V-fib arrest after you, you know, put them in the observation unit. Uh, and so you start to realize, oh my gosh, there are these really sick patients and they're really hard to pick out. And so over you start to realize that, oh my gosh, there's so much that I don't know and your confidence starts to drop a little bit, but then you start to spend more time in the emergency department. You become an attendant, you get a few years out and you start to see, maybe you've seen a dissection, maybe you've seen a few subarachnoid hemorrhages, maybe you've seen a few cases of bacterial meningitis, 
you start to get a better feel for what those patients really look like. And you remember not to let the monotony of the not sick patients prevent you from finding those really, really sick patients. And then as you get towards the end of your career, you get a much better knowledge base. You get a much more confident because you've seen so many of these things. You have a greater appreciation for that base rate because you can apply that base rate of dissection of subarachnoid hemorrhage to your own personal career. Whereas when you're just starting out as a resident, you read it in books. You know, I have a personal example where I saw a lady who had a history of diabetes presented with one day of nausea vomiting and she had gone out for seafood at a buffet last night and thought it was all related to that. So I present to my attending and I was like, yeah, I ordered the EKG, but you know, whatever. Right? And 20 minutes later, the EKG comes back because I didn't really push anyone to go get it because I was sort of going through the motions. And sure enough, she had acute stemming. Right? And I was like, oh, so what people tell me is true. Right? And so you will have those moments. You will have those moments where what has been described in the literature will happen to you. But sometimes you have to touch the hot stove before you can believe it's hot. Um, and that's why, that's why base rate fallacy is such a common problem, I think specifically in emergency medicine. I'm going to walk through another quick example. This one's going to jump a little bit more into medical statistics, so hang on. I know no one likes to talk about statistics, probably other than me. Um, so I'm going to give you a problem, and if any of you um, read or follow with Ryan Radecki and EM Lit of Life, he published this um, a little while ago, maybe about a year or six months ago. Um, so you may have, have seen this question before. Um, let's assume that of 0.8% of all women who get mammograms have breast cancer. Right? That's, the, that's the incidence of the prevalence, right? A mammogram will correctly catch about 90% of all breast cancers. And 7% of women who get mammograms will have a false positive. I.e., the mammogram says there's a mass or there's a cancerous concerning finding, but they don't actually have cancer. So my question for you is, if you have a positive mammogram, what's the chance, what's the probability that you have breast cancer? All right, so I'm going to give you like 30 seconds to 60 seconds here to a minute. I want you to try to come up with, now some of you might be able to do this in your head. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, if the other of you need to kind of throw some numbers around and write some things down, you know, give it a try, give it a, give it a good effort, because the answer may surprise you. All right, so I don't need a show of hands this time, but just out of curiosity, did anyone decide the answer was 93%? Because um, it, it's not. Um, the answer is 9%. Right, that's shocking, uh, at least it should be shocking, right? That of all people that get a mammogram, only 9% of them actually have cancer, right? We thought that the false positive rate was only 7%. So how is it only 9%? Right, so this is going to cringe, so try not to cringe, but here's a two-by-two two table. Um, and so I filled it out with numbers. I made a, a fictitious population of 1,000 patients, and I used the information that I gave you to fill out um, the table. Right? And so these are the numbers that come down. Right? I told you the prevalence was 0.8%. Um, and so we can calculate a few values from this two-by-two two table. Right? We can talk about sensitivity. We can talk about specificity. I'm not here to teach you what sensitivity and specificity are, but you do need to know them. Um, and we can calculate our positive and negative predictive value. And so my question was, what percent of people that have a positive mammogram have breast cancer? Right? What am I asking you for? I'm asking you for the positive predictive value. Positive predictive value is 9%. And the reason it's so low, the reason it's so low in this case, is because the incidence of breast cancer is so low, 0.8%. Right? And so the reason in medical statistics we often use the number sensitivity and specificity is those stay true. Right? So when the incidence or the prevalence of a disease changes from one patient population to another patient population, the sensitivity and the specificity do not change. The things that do change, though, are your positive predictive value and your negative predictive value. Right? Because these numbers become much larger over here, and that changes those formulas. 
Uh, and so it's important not to get carried away um, and not to do quick math. So the problem most people come up with is I gave you the false positive rate and I asked you to determine the positive predicted value. Maybe in your head you said, oh yeah, that's that first row, it goes across here. Um, what I'm looking for are the true positives, so one minus my false positives must be my positive predictive value, right? We know the formula for positive predictive value. I'm not up here to teach you how to do positive predictive value, but it's a quick mental shortcut a lot of us make, and we don't take into a lot of other things, like the base rate fallacy. So the next thing I want to talk about is correlation is not equal causation. Uh, hopefully everyone sitting here in the audience today knows that. Uh, and so I'm not here to belabor the point, but I do have a funny few examples here to maybe take that point home. I think the first one here is probably my favorite. Um, and so the number of people who drown by falling into a swimming pool seems to correlate pretty well with the number of films Nicolas Cage appears in. Now there may actually be causation there, uh, but that may just be my own personal opinion, right? Um, so there's a, here are a few more examples here for you, right? I don't have a really good explanation for why this is true, but for some reason the per capita cheese consumption somehow correlates almost miraculously well with the number of people who die by becoming tangled in their veggies. Now I didn't know that this was a thing, I didn't know that that could happen, and I'm not really sure how a dairy product would cause that to happen, but I've been told you're not supposed to drink milk before you go to sleep, so maybe there's a correlation there, right? And the last one I'm going to show you here is the divorce rate in Maine and the per capita consumption of margarine. Now, I don't know if people in Maine like their butter, and so, you know, people that use margarine are more likely to get divorced. I, I, I can't say personally, I know that I do like dishes that have lots of butter in them, and I like to stay away from margarine. Alright, so, I think most of us know that correlation is not even causation. And this is more of just an interlude to make sure I was on time, and it looks like I'm doing good. Alright, the next thing I want to talk about um, is a comment called regression to the mean. Um, and this is something that's fraught throughout medical literature, um, and it also brings up one of my favorite examples, and that is this. Right? I have a huge fear of this, right? specifically this word. Right? I don't like this word, I don't like working in the emergency department when people say this word. Right? And I, I don't know if any of you are superstitious, and I'm giving you a lecture on numeracy, and I'm going to tell you that I'm superstitious about the word quiet, which doesn't seem to make any sense. Right? But is there any fact, or is this all fiction, about the word quiet? And I tried to find a medical study that would show that when people say the word quiet, it's more likely to get busy. Because believe it or not, it's based in statistical fact, right? It's not just a bunch of people who are af afraid of um, the netherworlds. Right? So maybe to give you an example about why it's based in fact, let's walk through another example. Right? I made this up, right? This is an ED, and we can say this is your ED, and this is the volume of patients coming in per 15 minutes who check in to be seen in the emergency department, right? And we can calculate from this graph what the average level of busyness is with that red line. Now I have a question for you. When is somebody going to make a comment that it feels quiet? Are they going to make a comment up here? No. Are they going to make a comment here? No. Are they going to make a comment here? Maybe. Are they going to make a comment here? Yeah, absolutely. Right? And so the reason that there is statistical fact behind don't say quiet is not because of the word quiet, but because of where you are when you say the word quiet. Right? People don't comment how quiet it is when you're getting slammed. People don't comment how quiet it is when you're really busy. But comment on how quiet it is when it's significantly slower than it normally is. And that's the key right there, right? How slower than it normally is, right? There's an average level of business in your emergency department, and if yours is anything like mine, it's really busy, especially recently. Um, and I'm sure if you guys have any problems, you know, getting patients upstairs and boarding, it only compounds your problem. But you comment on it's quiet, when it's less busy than the average. Which means, what's the most likely thing to happen? Just by the law of averages. It's gonna get busier, because that's where the average lies. So that's the whole concept behind this theory of regression to the mean, right? 
It's the phenomenon that if you measure a variable that's very far away from the mean, the next measurement is probably going to be closer to the mean because there's a mean. Right? And so there's a few examples I'm going to draw to statistics um, or maybe even some concepts or topics in medical literature that use this to get published. And it's a great idea because it works every single time. Um, so you're guaranteed to get published. But it's not really because of what you did, it's because of regression to the mean. Uh, but another quick so, segue here. So there's a group of uh, people who do a lot of work on cognitive decision theory um, and this concept of, of making mistakes. And uh, one of them is a uh, Nobel Prize winner for economics, Daniel Kahneman. I'm not sure if any of you read anything by him. But this comes from one of his books. So he was working with the Israeli Air Force Training Department and working on getting their cadets trained how to, fly, how to fly pilots. And so they were working with the instructors, and maybe your own instructors here have noticed the same thing. As, and this is what they noticed. They noticed that every time they praised um, a cadet for doing a good acrobatic maneuver or for performing well, they tended to get worse. And every time they berated or criticized a cadet for not doing well, they got better. Ergo, you should stop praising your trainees and only berate and criticize them. Right? Now, that may or may not be true, and everyone has their own learning styles, but if we take it in the concept and the same idea of regression to the mean, where are you on this curve of performance when you get praised? No one praises you when you do a good job. Uh, well, maybe some people do. Uh, but most people are doing a really good job, and you're probably doing a better job than average, and that's why they're praising you. Right? Which means what's most likely going to happen? Right? You're most likely just going to do a little bit worse. Not because you got praised, but because you did such an exceptionally good job, it's hard to repeat that such exceptional performance. Right? And the exact inverse is also true. Right? So if you did a really bad job, the most likely thing to happen is you're going to do a little better next time. Right? You had a bad patient experience, you forgot to order a test, you missed a physical exam finding. Right? And other than the fact that we take that very personally and we're going to work to improve ourselves, you had a bad day, you had a bad patient experience. Right? You're most likely you're better than that, and your next experience is going to be better. Uh, and so regression to the mean is the statistical phenomenon that explains this uh, finding. Now, there's a few um, instances in literature where people get published by this. So let's say, for instance, your institution notices that there's a spike in pneumothoraxes related to central line placements. And all of a sudden, you had some low rate, somewhere between you know, 2, 3, 4, 5%, which is very similar across all academic institutions. And all of a sudden, for the last 2 to 3 months, that rate is 10%. They get a big group, they get a focus group together, they get representatives from the emergency department, from anesthesia, from surgery, uh, from medicine, and they talk about how are you doing your central lines, they come up with a best practice, they get a checklist, they get an observer to watch to make sure you're doing the checklist, and then the next few months, your new authority rate goes back down to 5%. Right? And they publish, look at our great formula for getting our new authority rate down. Now, there may be benefits to that, right? I can't, I can't uh, pull that part apart in the literature, but it's certainly possible that the reason that they got better is because that's where your average rate of pneumothorax is. And although it went up, the reason you have an average is because some months it's higher and some months lower, right? And so the fact that you get published based on a statistical phenomenon is a fantastic job and great for you. It uh, looks good for your CV. But you should be careful when you're evaluating literature that's using that, right? And so you can make the same connection with people who get published after, you know, central line infections. So people say, oh, we have a, more, we've got a crazy, ridiculous rate of central line infections in the ICU. They do this other intervention and their rate comes back down to the normal average rate. And so just keep that in your back mind, regression to the mean, um, and make sure people aren't using it to get published. Or, I guess you could use it to get published if you needed it to. All right. The last one I'm going to talk about today is something called the multiplicity fallacy. And this is probably my favorite. Um, and so I'm going to make a dice analogy. Um, and to help me make that dice analogy, I brought along 
a 20-sided dice. Now we could maybe try to make a correlation between the fact that I own a 20-sided dice and why I'm single, but we'll leave that for now. <laughs> so I do need a volunteer, and you do happen to come on stage, um, and this is, the, this, is the, this is the deal here, right? I'm going to roll this 20-sided die, and you want you to take a look at it. There's a number 1 through 20, right? If I roll a 20, you owe me $19. But if I don't, I'll give you a dollar. I have that dollar right here. Right, so this is how I was going to get my money back if I lost it in the first question. <laughs> right, so I'm going to roll this die, right, and I'll play with myself because I own a 20-sided die, so it's not something I don't do on top of it. I didn't mean it that way, but all right, excellent. <laughs> We're smiling out of control here. Right, so I'm going to roll my dice. That's a 20-sided die, right? All right, well, actually, hold on. I forgot, I forgot. I have to blow on the dice before I roll it. That's important, all right? So, all right, so we'll roll it one more time. Okay, well, actually, there's one other thing. I have to knock on the table. I told you I was superstitious. You gotta blow and then knock, right? So, and now I can roll my dice, right? Right, so this is bordering on absurdity, right? Because I could keep doing this until I get my 20, and that's not really fair. Um, and so, I want you to remember this example, but I'm going to take this example and apply it to medical statistics, right? So let's pause, right? And let's jump and transition. Right? We're going to come back to this. It's an abrupt transition, but, but hang with me here, right? So we know that the basis of medical statistics states that you have roughly, if you check a p-value and it's less than 0.05, we consider that to be statistically significant. Now, I think most people, but maybe not all people, know that that 0.05 is arbitrary, right? We arbitrarily decided that as a medical community that we were going to accept 0.05. And what that means, um, bottom line, is that when you do an intervention or you do a study and you have a p-value of less than 0.05, that the reason those two groups, those two interventions are different, there's a 5% chance or less that that difference is because of statistical anomaly or just chance alone. And a 95% chance, we hope, that it's due to whatever you did, whatever intervention, whatever change, whatever therapy you intervened on. Right? That's the basis of medical statistics right there in a nutshell. Right? I told you I was going to come back to my D20, and I'm going to do a little bit of math. Right? So I talked about a little bit of that earlier, but if you roll a 20-sided die, most of us could come up with the fact that you have a 1 in 20 chance of being correct. Right? Now, the reason I use a 20-sided die is because that gets me 5%, and that's the same number that we use in medical statistics. So I'm going to bear out a few more examples of me rolling this die to make my point. Right? What's my chance of rolling anything but a 20? Right? Everyone here probably can do this in their head. There's two ways to get at that number. 19 out of 20, or 1 minus 1 out of 20. Right? Both of those give you the same answer, which is 95%. Um, this might be a little more difficult. I'm not sure how many of you have taken statistics. My undergraduate degree is in engineering, which also probably explains a few other things. Um, <laughs> and the answer here is you multiply them together, and you end up with a quarter of 1%. All right? So pretty unlikely that I roll a dice twice and I get two 20s. Um, what about rolling a 20 once if I roll the dice twice. So I only have to roll it once, right? And you can't just add the probabilities together. This is a little bit more difficult to do, so you may have to just trust me. Uh, but the easier calculation is, what's my probability of not rolling a 20 on two dice and subtracting that from one? That's what I did, right? And it goes up from 5% to 9.7%, right? But to make my point, what if I rolled the dice three times? Right? Now I went to 14%. What if I rolled the dice 10 times? 40% chance that on one of those 10 rolls, I'll get a 20. If I roll 20 times, 64% chance, right? Not a guarantee, not a guarantee of 20 rolls, but a 64% chance that I'm going to find um, a 20 at least once. 
So let's apply this to medical statistics. Right, so this is a study that was published in Lancet back in 1988. This is a pretty big deal study. Not many of you have probably read it because you don't need to and you kind of already know what it finds. And it looked at the intervention of streptokinase and aspirate for people with acute myocardial infarction, right? So their primary outcome, it shouldn't be surprised to anyone sitting here, and that is if you give them aspirin, they have a lower mortality. I think, at least I hope most of you in the audience know that, right? And so that was awesome. And they went to go publish their article to Lancet. And Lancet said, great work, guys. Can you do some subgroups and maybe figure out who else benefits and who doesn't benefit from, from getting aspirin? Uh, and these guys, significantly smarter than myself, said, sure. And they did a bunch. Right? So I don't expect you to be able to read this, but this is the table that's published in The Lancet, and you can go find it and look at these. And it's absurd, the number of subgroups that they checked. Right? And sure enough, believe it or not, after they rolled the dice this many times, they found some that were significant. Uh, and I don't know if you know this, but if you have a Gemini or a Libra astrological sign, you're actually not going to benefit from getting aspirin in your acute myocardial infarction, right? And this was a shock to me because it's not part of my routine history to ask people what, what their sign is, right? I, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Uh, but I think anyone in this room here today thinks that that's probably absurd. We're not going to stop giving aspirin to people just because they're a Gemini or a Libra. And there's no pathological or excuse me, pathophysiological explanation that would make that make sense. But if I keep rolling the dice, I keep rolling the dice, eventually, by chance alone, I'm going to find something statistically significant. Right? So just in case you want to incorporate this into your practice, a Gemini is uh, May 21st to June 21st, and Libra is September 23rd to October 23rd. So I'm not up here to tell you that subgroups are useless. I'm not here to tell you we shouldn't use subgroups. I'm here to caution you about their use. Um, if you do a really good study and you check your primary outcome, um, and you don't have anything positive, people tend to go look at secondary outcomes, they tend to do these subgroup analysis, and sometimes they find benefit. The thing that's important to know is that that may be due to chance alone. That statistical significance may be due to chance alone. And so you can't change your practice based on the findings of a subgroup. But what you could do is repeat the study looking specifically at that subgroup and see if that, that finding, that difference holds out. So, I assume most of you guys are familiar with the three of these studies. They came out in the end of 2014 and the beginning of 2015. And they looked at mechanical intervention in people with stroke. Um, and if you've got to read on, I'm trying not to get into the whole controversy of strokes um, and interventions. But these three studies showed benefit for mechanical intervention after so many studies had shown no benefit, and in some cases, harm. But if you look at these three studies and pick out the thing that they did that was different than the ones before them, is they changed their inclusion criteria pretty specifically. And they were looking at a much, much smaller group of patients, right? They had to have a specific finding on CAT scan. They had to have a specific penumbra. They had to have a specific area of ischemia. They had to be in a specific location, right? And although it was published after the fact, I'm not sure if the authors went in and did some data mining on their initial trial. But they went back, and it is now published, of the IMS3 trial data and some of the other trials with it, looking specifically at the patient population that were defined in these groups in those trials that showed no benefit. And when you do that subgroup analysis, they showed benefit. All right, so I'm not sure if these authors were really intelligent or just took a wild guess, but we derive evidence and suggestions for future therapy based on that last study. So subgroups can provide benefit, but you gotta be careful with them and you can't take the subgroup itself um, as a practice changer. So I told you today we were gonna talk a little about numeracy. I told you we were gonna talk a little about some common numerical errors, which we've done. I tried to um, make you care, maybe you did, maybe you don't. And then I promised you I would give you a few ideas about how to improve your own numeracy, right? So, 
I don't have a single medical textbook up here. I don't have a single statistics textbook up here because I don't learn well from those, right? So these are three of the books that I've read that I think do a really, really good job. And they're not all about medicine, right? They're about understanding and working with numbers on a regular basis, right? The first one is, um, well, a couple of them are actually New York Times bestsellers, right? It's really, really well known. It doesn't deal with medicine. It talks about medicine a few times. And it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, and it's by Daniel Con Conman. He um, used, a, I actually borrowed a few examples uh, from my presentation today directly from that book. It's a little bit of a long read, but it's good. The second one is called Innumeracy. This is um, a gentleman who teaches math, um, actually right next door to me at Temple. Um, and he talks through, and this is a quick read, right? This is short, easy, straightforward, but he just talks about understanding numbers and understanding the numbers that often get presented in the news, in articles, and how you can be mistaken by those numbers. That's a quick, easy read. It's um, pretty enjoyable. The last one is called How Not to Be Wrong. So the other two presidents in the room may recognize this was... Um, on the Incubator uh, Book Club earlier this year. Um, it's also a really good book. Similar, I would say it's probably a middle ground between these two, right, in terms of, of depth and, and what else is going on. They're really good books. You have a ton of other things that you need to learn, but if you're ever on vacation or looking for something that's a little easier, lighter read, these are really, really good books, right? The next thing I want to jump into is if you want to improve your understanding of medical statistics. I think it's a really um, scary topic to jump into. It's very intimidating. And there are a few good resources that I found that are not textbooks. I have not ever found a good medical statistics textbook. I'm still looking. I've asked a lot of people. They all give me a different one, and they all stink. Right, so if you go to the, the BMJ and you look under statistical notes, there's a collection of articles by two gentlemen, uh, Land and Altman, um, Doug Altman and Martin Land, who publish short summaries, one to two pages, a you know, PDF, about a statistical topic, right? Using a p-value comma as errors. They talk about regression to the mean. Um, they talk about uh, corrections for multiple testing, right? Rolling the dice multiple times, and how you could, but we often don't correct for that. Uh, they also talk about things like receiver operating curves or receiver operating characteristics, what a kappa value is, right? And so I encourage you, as you go through your career, if you encounter something on a journal club or a different article, don't try to go read about it online. Go to one of these sources, they're really good. And JAMA has done the exact same thing, right? And so you can go look under their statistics and research methods, or if you get JAMA, every few months there's a one or two page article on one of these topics. So missing data, how best to capture what's known, um, non-impurity trials, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and these are really, really good sources. The other thing that I want to bring to your attention is something called the consort guidelines. It has nothing to do with numeracy, so it's a little bit off topic, but the reason it's important is people much smarter than ourselves got down and are aware of all of these fallacies that people perform with numbers and designed some guidelines that if you followed, you would be less likely to perform. Right, so the contour guidelines originally came out back in 1996. They were updated most recently in 2010. You can go onto their website. And it's a quick checklist of things that you should do. Right? And one of them includes that you should register a randomized controlled trial before you do it. And you should state what your, what your primary outcome is. Right? Because just like I sat here and I rolled my dice many times until I got my 20, you could do the same thing after you do your study and say, well, my primary outcome was worked out. No, 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 my primary outcome was duration of ICU stay. No, 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 my primary outcome was people who still exhibited shortest of breath 10 days after discharge from the hospital. Because that's where, that's where I find my statistical significance. Right? And so, you can go to clinicaltrials.gov, um, and some of you may already be very familiar with this. It takes uh, a few minutes, and you can go look and see. Now, some people make changes about enrollment dates and things like that, and that's to be understood. But look and see. Did they ever change their primary outcome? Um, and you may be surprised. Uh, and I think what you may even be more surprised by is the number of times randomized controlled trials are not registered ahead of time. So we have no idea whether or not they're changing that data. And so in summary today, I told you I was going to tell you 
about a few numerical errors, and I figured I would summarize them up um, so that you can remember, right? So we talked a little bit about the gambler's fallacy, right? The chance of flipping ahead on a coin is always 50-50, and don't play roulette. Right? We talked about the base rate fallacy, right? Which, if you had to summarize it, merely states that things, rare things happen rarely, right? And don't forget that. And a corollary of that is that rare things happen a lot less than common things do, right? So ACS is way more common than acute aortic dissection. Migraine headache, way more common than subarachnoid hemorrhage, right? So although you still need to work those out, and it's important because they have a lot of morbidity, a lot of mortality associated with them, don't be discouraged when you don't find them. We talked about correlation and causation. I've even presented a case as to why many of us should stop acting. Uh, we talked about not eating cheese when you're in bed, um, else you get tangled in your bed sheets and die. Um, I think the residents might enjoy this one. I would talk a little bit about regression to the mean and how people can get published off of it, but we also talked about why you need to praise your residents more and stop berating them, because uh, it's not going to help. Uh, and finally, we talked a little bit about multiplicity. Uh, and this is, um, the, my co-residents love to make fun of me because I say this all the time when we're in journal club, you can't keep rolling the dice. Right? You don't get to keep rolling the dice and seeing when you find your, your statistically significant finding because that's going to lead you down the road of fallacy and falsehood. 